This evening I'd like to preach from Psalm 131. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this is one of the shortest psalms, but it's actually one of the longest to learn. Psalm 131. It's a psalm of confidence, a psalm of trust. It's also what's called a psalm of ascents. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 14 psalms that the Israelites three times a year would sing. They were songs for the road, if you will, as they made their pilgrimage up to the great city of Jerusalem. They would, they would sing these songs uh, to strengthen them and encourage them and orient them and direct them in their personal discipleship. It's also a psalm of David, a busy man an important figure in redemptive history. But not only a psalm of David, also a psalm of the greater David, David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is so interesting to me because when you think about the psalms and you think about how these songs became his song, the song of of our Lord Jesus, we find in Scripture that God actually gives us the normative psychology, if you will. In other words, we get window into the heart of a person, of God's servant. We get to learn how he thinks, how he believes, how he desires, the internal operations of his soul are on display in the Psalms. And you will find this no other place. And so, if we're interested in growing up in Christ's likeness, let's go to the Psalms. Because these Psalms, this Psalm, bids to become your song. It's a wonderful song. Psalm 131, verses one Three. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as we open up Your Word, Your Spirit would work together with Your Word to open our eyes, to go to work, to sanctify us, to change us, to strengthen us, not by might, not by power, but by Your Holy Spirit, we ask You to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Someone nudged me this morning saying, hey, I'm really looking forward to 
this evening's service. I noticed the title, uh, A Heart-Stilled Song for a Strong-Willed Child. And I started nudging my child. Well, actually, this song is for me. This song is for you. We are the strong-willed child. And this psalm goes to work to still the stormy sea. In a sentence, this is the message. A life of peace arises from a work of faith in response to a call to hope. Let's look at that in turn. First of all, a life of peace. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It's so quiet, isn't it? It's such a quiet psalm. We're eavesdropping as David comes to the Lord and talks to him. Oh Lord, this is my experience. I'm quiet and I'm restful on the inside because I have escaped the jaws of pride. A few years ago, I was reading a magazine and I was intrigued by this story of five scuba divers that plunged from their boat off of Tatawa Island in eastern Indonesia. It's an area famous for the rich and varied marine life. Sharks everywhere, manta rays, sea turtles, and more. And it's also famous for treacherous and unpredictable seas. And sure enough, these scuba divers got caught in the current. And they were swept 20 miles down sea. And their last chance was to scramble and swim, and they did, to the little island called Rinka. And so they landed on the beach. And it would seem that all was well until they faced another threat. Kids, have you ever seen a picture of a Komodo dragon? This is the island on which they live. They are up to 10 feet long. They can grow up to 365 pounds. They have sharp, serrated teeth. And they always come out of the woods when they smell something new, like you, a human being. Well, the story ends on a happy note. They escape from the Komodo dragon. But as I remember reading that story, I thought, Genesis chapter 4, the deadliest of sins, pride is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you, and you've got to master it. Living inside of me and living inside of you is a Komodo dragon. And the Bible calls it pride. 
You read through the chapters of Genesis early on and you begin to see the problem. Genesis chapter 11, where these people say, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. That's the problem. That's the biggest problem. Pride living in me. Pride living in you. And we, God says, must master it. David is learning how to master it. David is quiet and restful on the inside because David has escaped the jaws of pride. Notice this threefold denial. First of all, my heart is not lifted up in pride. Think with me, consider with me when your heart, when my heart is lifted up in pride. We create and we climb up towers of self-exaltation. We busy ourselves with imposing our will on other people. I want you to do my will. I don't know about you, but uh, it's been difficult, hasn't it, navigating COVID. And one of the challenges is that it has exposed in me, I want my way when I want it. And the frustration is I'm on the phone and I've got to wait and wait and wait. It just, it seems so plausible, doesn't it? I mean, what's wrong with that? Actually, it exposes a heart of exaltation. I want what I want when I want it. And I impose my will. Or you busy yourself with proving your worth. You go for the promotion. You go for the trophy. You go for the bigger than. Or you busy yourself with getting more stuff more comfort, more recognition, more satisfaction. Can I tell you a secret? Last night, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but my wife went out and bought, uh, I don't know what they're called, but they come out at Christmas. They're those pretzels with, with white chocolate coating. And about 11 o'clock, I'm just, I'm just wanting more and more and more. And you're nodding. <laughs> and I can't stop. Because I want what I want when I want it. I want more. It's the heart of self-exaltation. But consider the noise that, that that heart makes. Consider all of the conflict in your life when you live like that. When you impose your will on another person. It's so much noise. There's so much anxiety. There's so much worry. I see something I want and I may not get it and so it's teetering and tottering and it might fall down and I become anxious because it may fall down. Or maybe I'm despairing because something that was my precious something that was so important to me, well, it's falling down. Think of all of the noise, the guilt, that springs from a heart 
that seeks to build up a tower in self-exaltation. But David says, my heart is not lifted up. Isn't that not amazing? Is that not so attractive? Isn't that what we want? Secondly, David says, my eyes are not raised too high. Consider when your eyes are raised too high. You're looking down on other people. You're creating and you're climbing a tower to make a name for yourself. And so you're always comparing yourself to another person. You're always in competition with another person. And consider all of the noise that that makes. Sometimes you're feeling pleasure because you're way ahead of that person because you're looking down. They're further down the rung. But sometimes you're feeling threatened because that person is getting closer and they might overtake you. It's a lot of noise, isn't it? But David says, my eyes are not raised too high. Thirdly, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Wow. Consider when your feet run after things that are too great and too marvelous for you. You you create and climb up a tower into the heavens. In other words, you, you try to do the impossible. You, you try to do things that are beyond your capacity and control. This phrase, things too great and too marvelous for me, I began to recognize it in different places throughout the Scripture. It's actually a phrase that, that God uses to describe the things that He does. And David is saying, I'm not trying to be godlike. I'm not chasing after things that are beyond me. I remember talking to someone who I could so identify he was having trouble making decisions. And I'll never forget asking him, would you like to be omniscient? And he said, yes, I would. But we're not omniscient, but we want to be. And he was struggling to make decisions because he didn't know everything. He felt like he needed to know to make the decision. Or my besetting struggle. And I don't know if this is going to be more difficult living up in West Michigan. Because you all mow your grass and keep your flowers just so perfect. (laughs) And I like that. I want to be perfect. I don't like mistakes. I don't like blemishes. I kind of want to be omnipotent and avoid making mistakes. I want to be godlike. It's it's a real problem. David Pallison commenting in an excellent article on this passage talks about the noise that this kind of heart makes. Most of the noise is generated, generated, he says, by trying to control the uncontrollable. 
What happens when you attempt to control another person's attitudes and choices to bend them to your will? You set yourself up for all sorts of ugly things. Despair or rage or anxiety or short-lived euphoria, suspicion or manipulation. What happens when you attempt to ensure that you will not get sick and die? You become obsessed with diet and exercise or becoming litigious towards doctors or plagued with fear and any nagging pain thinking this might be the big one that finally gets me. What happens when you are obsessed with getting people to like you? You become flirtatious or artificial, a coward or a deceiver, a chameleon or a recluse. What happens when you live for success in sports or career or physical appearance? You get injured. You finally retire. Someone comes along who is better than you or better looking than you. And you get old and wrinkle and you die. But when you pursue what you were called to pursue, it makes sense that you would have composure. You've discovered what you're made for. When you go after the right things, you'll find what you are looking for. And that's David. So quiet. I do not preoccupy myself with things too great for me. In this one verse, we learn this important lesson. And this might surprise us. We become restless and noisy inside because we become entangled by the cords of pride working within us. Have you ever heard that explanation? For why I'm so noisy inside. The Bible gives us x-ray vision into what is so often going on. I can tell you so much of my own personal anxiety is a result of my own pride being threatened. I really want this to happen, but it might not. And so I get anxious. And I can tell you that so much of my struggle with despondency is my own pride failing. I really want to do a good job. I really think I can do a good job, but I didn't. My pride is failing. John Calvin. Here David teaches us a very useful lesson and one by which we should be ruled in life. To be contented with the lot which God has marked out for us to consider what He calls us to and not to aim at fashioning our own lot, to be moderate in our desires, to avoid entering into rash undertakings, and to confine ourselves cheerfully within our own sphere instead of attempting too great a thing. It's a life of peace when we live by that counsel. But secondly, David says this life of peace is the result of my work of faith. The text says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
Once again, Dr. Pallison's insights are so helpful here. What is David not describing? He's not describing unruffled detachment. He's not describing stoic, Dutch-like indifference. He's not describing an easygoing, phlegmatic personality. He's not describing low expectations. He's not describing retreat from all of the commotion. He's not describing retirement to ease and wealth maybe at the Upper Peninsula. Is that right? He's not describing that. He's not describing that calm after a glass of wine. He's not describing that. Instead, he's describing something very different. First of all, he's describing something that is consciously active, not passive. David says, I've done something. I have calmed and quieted my soul. He's very active. This is not faith without work. This is not letting go and letting God, as well intended as that phrase can be. That's the problem, the error of pietism. Letting go, letting God, I do nothing. David says, nope, that's not it. It's not faith without work. Nor is it work without faith. It's not sheer will trying to overthrow self-will. This is the problem of moralism. Trying hard. Digging deep. Looking inside yourself. And by sheer will, trying to overthrow self-will. Strong will. That's not it either. It's a third way. It's a work of faith. Notice secondly, it's not only consciously active, it's relationally responsive. A child with its mother. Think about that for a second. There's a relational transaction taking place before our eyes. David's action is in response to God's action. I'm too weak to escape my pride. You are too weak to escape your pride. We're too weak because our pride is too strong. We need rescue from someone outside of ourself. This is radically different than what the world teaches. Bookshelves are filled with books that are counseling me and counseling you to look inside, dig deep. You can do it. And the gospel says, no, we can't. We need rescue from a person outside of ourself because the problem in me is too strong. Only one thing, David Pallison writes, is strong enough to overthrow our pride. What God promises to do for me and what God promises to do for you through the person of Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God promises to overthrow our pride and to reestablish His rule. From one side of the relationship, God calms and quiets David's soul by making and keeping promises. 
I will help you. And from the other side of the relationship, David calms and quiets his soul by recalling and believing God's promises. You will help me. Did your heart not melt this morning as we were listening to Pastor Dale preach the gospel and emphasizing the promises that God makes? The promises that God makes. I promise. I will help you. I will do it. You can bank on it. 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle writes, God has given to us His precious and very great promises so that by these promises you may escape the lust, the pride that is in the world by deceitful desires. He just promises. He promises. And His Word cuts like a skillful surgeon. It's the only power in the world that can slay our lust. He promises. So this is consciously active. This is relationally responsive. But thirdly, notice, it's supernaturally transformative. I'm like a weaned child. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Mothers can especially appreciate this. You taper off the milk supply to the nursing child until the child no longer craves it. Until the child's attention is directed from here to there. It's a striking contrast between an unweaned child and a weaned child. An unweaned child is squirming and fussing and whining. Kind of like me. Only in adult-like forms. An unweaned child is ignorant of the relationship. An unweaned child knows nothing of promise. An unweaned child is, is trusting in herself or himself to obtain what she or he wants, craves. An unweaned child, if you could get inside the soul of an unweaned child, you would hear conversations like this, if I don't come through, if I don't get this, I'm going to die. Have you ever thought like that? But David's not like that. He's like a weaned child. A weaned child is very much different than, than an unweaned child. A weaned child is sitting and resting and waiting, confident of this relationship. My mother is not an object. My mother is a person who knows me, who sees me, who cares for me, who provides for me. My mother is full of promise. A weaned child is trusting in her mother to provide. If you could get inside the soul of a weaned child, you would hear conversations like this. There's a lot of things I don't know, but this I do know. She will not let me die. She will help me. She will. I know her character. She will never leave me. She will never forsake me. 
There is a tie that binds me to her. And so there's this supernatural transformation. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child is my soul within me. It's this total change in direction. The milk that once meant everything has become to mean nothing. And the food that once meant nothing has now come to mean everything. And David is saying, likewise, making much of myself has come to mean nothing, and making much of my Lord has come to mean everything. I'm like a weaned child. A strong-willed child transformed into a God-dependent, God-trusting, weaned child. You know, a couple of years ago, I don't know why, but this was, this was really significant in my life. Cindy and I were going through a season where there was just hard everywhere around the corner. And one of the hards were, was that her dad died in October two years ago. And we were just beside ourselves. There was, there was just a lot of hard going on. And so I was really disoriented and, and struggling. And, and guess who was asked to preach the homily at Mr. Corson's funeral? And I remember the night before thinking, I have nothing to say. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And it was late. I mean, it's like 11 o'clock. And this is, this is how my prayers were going. I kid you not. Oh, Lord, please help me. I don't think you will, but please help me. Oh, Lord, I'm squirming, I'm scrambling, I'm begging. Oh, Lord, please help me. Please, please, please. I don't know that you will, but please. Have you ever prayed like that? I don't think that you will, but please do so. And I don't know what happened. All I can say is that it was the grace of God. Something changed. And I thought, wait a minute. You will help me. This is what you do. I am yours and you are mine. And you care about me. You hold me fast. I am exactly the kind of person that you are looking to help because I need help. And I can't do this without you. You will help me. Wow. It was dramatic. This change. I don't think you will. You will help me. It was the most wonderful, quiet. And you know what I'm talking about. You've had these moments where the grace of God enables you to see that He makes these promises and you believe them. And you escape the corruption that is in the heart called pride. We are saved from ourselves by God's grace flowing through this work of faith, this relational transaction. It's a life of peace that arises from a work of faith 
in response to finally the call of hope, the call to hope. Now I want you to notice the change here. Notice the change in direction. Before, we were eavesdropping, and David was talking to God. But now he's looking you in the eye. And now he's talking to you. And notice the change in grammar. He's gone from describing to inviting, to calling, yes, even commanding. And notice first he calls you by name. Oh, Israel. And you say to me, he calls me by name? That doesn't sound like a Dutch name to me. It doesn't start with a V. Israel? Yes, Israel. Remember Jacob? What does Jacob mean? The name means deceiver. The name means trickster. And remember the night that God engaged Jacob in a wrestling match. And Jacob, who was so self-reliant his entire life, finally met his match, and he could not win. The only thing he could do was to cling to God and to the grace that he might give. And so he did in this mysterious figure in the night. says, what is your name? Come on, confess your name. Jacob, trickster, deceiver, duping my way through life in my own strength. That's right. But no longer will your name be called Jacob. Your name shall be called Israel, which means God fights for you. And God is so gracious to Jacob, he gives it a double meaning. Not only God fights for you, but you have prevailed because you have trusted me and you have given up all of your self-exalting pride for me. But of course, Jacob has a greater son and his name is Jesus. The one in whom there is no guile. The one who is faithful. The one who is trusting. Oh, and when you become a Christian, you become united to this true Israelite, which is why the Bible calls you Israel. Christian. Child of God. He looks you in the eye. He calls you by name. And He calls you to hope in the Lord. Psalm 131 is paired with Psalm 130. It's interesting to read these two side by side. In Psalm 30, there's this, there's this other image that's repeated twice. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? The watchman who stays awake at night because at night the city is vulnerable to attacks by the enemy. And so the watchman stays awake at night and is longing and looking for the sunrise to come up a day of safety. That's what it means to hope in the Lord. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, 
Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This morning, I kid you not, it was about 6.15 and I was stumbling in the dark. We're still unpacking boxes and I tripped over this box in the hallway. But I made it downstairs and I fixed the coffee and I'm sitting there drinking my coffee and reading my Bible. And about 10 after 7, I look out the window and it's beginning to rise. And that's what we're called to do, to wait on Him because you know He's coming. He's faithful. He will never lie to you. He will come. He has come. He is coming. He will come again. And so we hope in the Lord. And notice the lifestyle to which you're called. This is not one and done. This is from this time forth and forevermore. You see, you're going to have to do this tomorrow morning. You can't live on borrowed capital. Even if you did it today, you've got to do it again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the rest of your life. You stop climbing the towers. We start trusting the Lord who comes down. This is a heart-stilled song for a strong-willed child. In a few moments, we're going to close our worship by singing the great hymn, Be Still My Soul, Katerina von Schlegel. It's an extended meditation on this passage and, and just take note of how she calms and quiets her soul by focusing on the God who is promising and keeping His promises. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for this little bitty psalm. And yet it just maps exactly onto our noisy, stormy life. We confess our pride. We confess our self-exaltation. We confess we raise our eyes too high. We confess we go after the uncontrollable. Like parting the Red Sea. We try to do things too great and too marvelous. Give us the grace to stay in our place, to live as a human being ought to live in humble dependence on You. Make us more like Jesus this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Be still my soul.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.